Okay, I'm ready. Hey. Thank you, Brenda. Um, do you want to call the um the time? Yeah, the time is five forty-four. Great, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Louis, Lorita Mellon. Present. Neha Banger. She's absent. Lucia Angel. Present. B. Franks Walker. Present. Witcher and Harvey and Eric Murphy will not be in tonight. Mark Smith. Khalil Toki. I'm here. Ali Yessing. Present. We have a quorum. Okay, excellent. Okay, um, today um, I just really wanted to share very briefly that in regards to the memo that Mark and um, I sent to the Board of Trustees and the Ad Hoc Committee uh, last month, we also sent a copy, I also typed a little memo and sent a copy to uh, Wilma Chan, who's with Alameda County, and then um, Ethan Norris and what's his other name? Uh, Jonathan, I think it is, Friedman. So um, I typed a memo to them asking them to review the previous memo and to respond back. I have not heard anything yet, but um, I'm anticipating hearing from them soon. Do you know anything, Brenda? I mean, um, uh, Heather, about that? Uh, no, we have not heard from them uh, at, okay. at uh, HF either. Um, there is a board meeting uh, happening tomorrow, so the tomorrow. board meeting happens tomorrow. Um, okay. So there's another opportunity if uh, anybody desired to make public comments as an individual. And then Loretta and Mark, um, we have authorized to make comments on behalf of the board um, as our liaisons. Um, they would be able to make public comment on behalf of as uh, on behalf of the board at that meeting if they wanted to. Okay, perfect. Okay, well that's all that I have for um, item A. For uh, item B, can I um, get someone to uh, say they'd like to approve the minutes of May 11th at our last board meeting? I motion to approve. Yeah, I motion to approve uh, last month's meeting. Thank you, Lucia. Second, Dad. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, and then our um, third item is Damon. Hey, Loretta. Quick, quick second, Loretta. Um, yes, uh, yes, yes. It's a consent item, and so since it's a consent item, and you have your. Oh, we have to take yeah. Well, you, you just have to ask whether or not there are any objections. Are any, but otherwise, yes, are there, you don't need individual votes. Right. Are there any objections to approving the minutes? Okay, great. All right, and Damon, we're ready to hear from you for item C. Great, so I'll keep my report really brief. Um, we 
have been doing the COVID updates and uh, in a more formal way, but I think since you know the last few months, there's been less and less changing with the homeless response. I'm just um, gonna, gonna keep the updates brief. Um, the county has stopped, unfortunately, producing a um, monthly written report on the number of cases and the number of outbreaks and the um, vaccination totals. Um, as soon as they produce another one, I will definitely make sure to forward that to you. But I think the the main ideas are the same. Um, we aren't seeing, you know, massive increases in cases. We're seeing about the same numbers of cases in the in the homeless community overall, um, remaining low coming out of that, um, you know, winter winter spike. Um, not a lot of outbreaks in shelters or um, or in encampments. And um, the vaccination program is is proceeding. Um, I think you all have read already in the packet that um, our mobile health program is going back to um, our sort of standard operations rather than participating in the um, vaccination efforts now. Um, I don't know the, the full numbers of where they're at, um, where the countywide vaccination program is at right now, but um, I do know that the team has been participating in uh, vaccinating some of the, um, I forget the names, um, Heather, do you remember the, the, the maritime sailors who are, uh, yeah. you know, on container ships and cargo ships? Um, that's that's been a, an additional population that um, you know is really really underserved globally um, and and at really high risk. Um, that I think we've been really proud as a county that organized the response and some of our team members um, here at Allegheny Health System have been part of that. It's just pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, any any questions about? Um, about the uh, COVID response at all before I move on? All right, great. I think I had also been, you know, sharing a patient story just to um, kind of let you all in on what's, what's on my mind lately. I saw a patient today in clinic who um, had been on the streets for a long time, um, had been, you know, a victim of violence um, and um, really struggling. Ended up making contact with a family member again, um, was staying kind of temporarily with her family member and then moved into her own place. And I think, um, you know, she, I sort of knew that whole storyline and saw her in clinic a, a, about a month ago and really was expecting, you know, her to feel a lot better. And moving into the new place, she um, started having flashbacks and really, you know, kind of scary um, just memories and dreams and nightmares about, you know, things that happened, you know, over the course of her life, traumatic experiences over the course of her life. Um, and I saw her again today, and uh, she was much better. You know, we had we had speculated at the time that I saw her last week that it was just going to be like settling in and, you know, even these really positive changes are hard changes. And I was thinking about how um, this colleague of mine says, never celebrate data. You know, like you see uh -huh. a housing outcome or something like that that's like marked down on a sheet of paper and you really don't know what that means about the person's experience. Um, and, you know, how great it is that uh, we have a board um, that includes folks who, you know, really understand these experiences um, at a level that goes much deeper than the statistics and the data. Um, and so um, that also just, you know, made me excited to be able to um, introduce Dr. Herring, who um, works with a 
Bridge Clinic, and I think is someone who you know, has developed an amazing program that you're going to hear about in partnership with a lot of you know partners in our community and a lot of staff um, here who you know both has driven some amazing data and some amazing results that you're going to see. But I think um, is is most proud of you know the teams and the human connections that that we're building through the through the Bridge Clinic. Um, and so with that, I'd love to give it to um, to Andrew to. to um, Tell us about the bridge clinic and the next agenda item, if you're okay with that, um, Loretta. Yes, yes, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Herring. Welcome. Great. Yeah, thank you, Damon. Thank you, Loretta. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll share my screen here, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hold on. Shared screen issues. There it is. Okay. Word. There it is. Got it. Okay. Remind me, how, how much time do I have? What were we thinking? Um, um, not any. How did you, you have about any? 20 minutes. 20, 20 minutes? minutes? Great. Yeah. And then, and um, what do you think? I mean, I'm very happy to take questions at any point, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm also happy to cruise through. So it's just, just let me know there. Um, so again, thank you so much for inviting me to talk a little bit about the Bridge Program. Um, at Highland, um, it is it is really something very special um, that I think a lot of us feel really proud about. Just a little bit about me: I'm an emergency physician. Um, I've been at Highland since 2008. I've been working and doing nonprofit work in in Oakland since 2000. Um, oh, with wow. the yeah, it's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. I moving on um, with the as one of the founders of the Street Level Health Project. Oh. I. Um, so in addition to working at Highland, I'm the principal investigator of the California Bridge, which is a, it's a funded by primarily by the state of California to help set up basically programs that were modeled after what we've done in Highland um, all, mm -hmm. over, all over California. So um, those are my two, two main roles. And then I'm the medical director at the um, Bridge Clinic as well as work in the ER. So I, I think that really this is sort of the importance of the bridge really make, make sense in context of what came before it. So this is a New York Times article about Highland Hospital um, back in the <laughs> And, you know, I encourage people just to, just to Google it. Um, it's really pretty remarkable. It's, a, it's an honestly pretty ugly article. Um, it was a time when, you know, drug use um, disorders were, were really just seen in this, this lens of, 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 Society falling apart, um, the, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of implicit and explicit violence against patients. Um, there's really no thought. There's no thought about sort of the human experience of a use disorder. Um, it's it's very heavy-handed. I mean, I think that the the racial sort of underpinnings of this are, are really pretty pretty not very even well hidden. Um, it's really pretty obvious 
what was going on. Um, so that was Highland. Um, and then, it, then the New York Times did another article um, in 2018, right? And it's, I would also encourage people to take a look at it. It's completely different, right? It's, it's really the, it's thinking about a use disorder as any other human condition that we're struggling with, a disease or whatever, um, and that fundamentally being, being a physician, being a hospital is being nice and being curious and trying to help people move forward um, with their life wherever it is. So that's really that transformation from judgment um, and just and ignoring people and even hostility towards embracing the emergency department as this unparalleled way to 24-7 reach people and with this low threshold on-demand approach to treatment for use disorders um, is, is really, that's the, the, the heart of what the bridge is. So in, in just sort of thinking about it, you know, what does this really look like? Um, <clears throat> you know, this is, this is not Highland every day, but, you know, on its best day, right, the, the experience of the bridge begins, you, you walk into the ER, you know, and, and here's, your, here's your triage nurse. And right there, you know, it's just, it talks to you in direct language, respectful language. It's not euphemistic. It's not, you know, would you be interested in recovery? You know, with, for whatever that means, right? It's really explicit. Like, hey, are you having trouble with pills that maybe we prescribed you, or are you using heroin? Um, and do you want to try buprenorphine, or Suboxone? Being being real open to allowing people to engage at at their level how they want to without having to take on an entire treatment plan, which has a lot of sort of discipline, submission, power kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the, the, the nice thing about this too is this, this kiosk, right, this triage, this is the linking point for people. This might be someone who came from Santa Rita Jail and our team you know, the medical director of the Santa Rita medical team, uh, Dr. Kellyanne Carey, and Luke Johnson, who's our discharge coordinator, we are friends. We share cell phone numbers. We make sure that anyone who's discharged from Santa Rita, whether it's 2 o'clock on Tuesday or 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, knows that they can come directly to Highland to get started. No questions asked on continuation of their treatment for opioid use disorder. So that simple thing, which seems so obvious, right? an emergency department reaching out to local jail to make sure that someone whose mortality is something like 100 times that, you know, of other folks using opioids always has a place to go, that's actually incredibly rare, right? There's just not very many places mm -hmm. in the country that have been able to achieve that. Um, so this, this sign might be someone who's coming from the needle, the, the syringe services program. So Bronze Courtney is who, of course, Damon and maybe many, many others on this call know well, who <clears throat> he knows that he's got a place to send people, again, 24 hours a day to be able to initiate therapy, whether or not they're you know, they might be, they might be looking pretty rough. They might not have showered. They might be, you know, have other problems. They might be in emotional distress. Like that's what the ER is mm -hmm. meant for. It's to handle these kind of, you know, bristly, you know, just things aren't put together neatly like they often sort of are in the clinic setting. Mm -hmm. So, 
So there, the um, that's how your, your your patient sees this. You see this, and we do a lot of work with with nurses and all the staff. So it's the it's the techs and the EKG folks and the security. Just so the whole atmosphere is non-judgmental, which is the key. Because um, people, if people feel they're going to be judged or they're not going to get anything that actually helps them, they're either going to going to going to just not tell you anything and pretend there is use, no use disorder, or do really do things that are really just silly. Well, they'll make up a disorder in order to get opioids for pain that doesn't exist and stuff like that. Um, so before we started this program, it was pretty standard, you know, that you'd see these absolutely insane stories of people basically faking appendicitis because they really actually wanted to get off of heroin, but they knew they couldn't handle the withdrawal. So they would fake appendicitis or something like that to get a little opioid, to get them over the corner, right? And I even met one one of our early patients, um, a great guy, he's doing really well now, paralegal. He um, he then he then would even feign suicidality to get residential treatment, mm. right? Because he knew he'd be locked, he'd have a have a have a control there. So that's an extreme story, but that's really the kind of stuff that happens when you don't make a space where people can just be truthful. So um, and then you have to link link the ER with a clinic that really gets it. Because this, this is also the problem, is as a probably a lot of people in this call know, to really fashion true unfettered access, on-demand access in an ambulatory setting is not easy, right? So it takes a lot of work to create a true, we will never turn you away drop-in clinic. And that's what we did with the bridge. And those are the two sort of components. You have an ER that culturally is on 24-7, for everyone walks in with a non-judgmental, treatment-first, low-threshold approach, who's partnered with a bridge clinic, who has drop-in hours and is able to take those patients, no questions asked, always. Whether or not they have insurance, whether or not they come with a referral, you know, all of this stuff. And if you have those two things, that is the engine to bringing in large numbers of people in, into treatment who otherwise would not be successful accessing treatment anywhere else. And that is really the core of the model that, that is really now recognized as the, um, as, the really, as the ideal state really across the country. The, the people who pull this together, right, because we, you know, as, as a physician, you know, we're about building structures and sort of the brick and mortar of what this is going to look like, the treatment pathways, et cetera. But the lived reality of our medical system is very complicated. It's fragmented, really experienced as hostile in many ways, these sort of arbitrary things of you didn't bring a valid, you know, picture ID um, and so, therefore, you aren't going to get your life-saving medication that's going to keep you from going into withdrawal. That, that can just seem just like a, an aggression um, on the part of patients. So, have our substance use navigators, which primarily are young people um, that are recruited out of the Mentoring and Medicine Science Program, which is a mentoring program one of my colleagues, um, Jocelyn Freeman Garrick, has, has set up and runs. So, both Zaire and Kelvin are examples recruited out of her program, and then they they come to the bridge, and they aren't really there just to sort just to sort of follow the orders of the medical team, but they're really empowered to shape the program in a way that fits the needs of our patients, because they're the ones who, as much more than anyone else, walk in their shoes. 
So I, if I want to know if another clinic in the area has good services, I just, I don't go and talk to the medical director. I talk to one of these guys because they'll actually know because they've, they're kind of the secret shopper reality check on whether or not it's actually easy to get into care. So they do all kinds of stuff from um, just letting people know what their options are. You know, we, we really have leaned into suicide screening and providing access for acute mental health services, really trying to pull in folks who might also be infected with HIV. Um, all of these areas um, are really been led um, by the substance use navigators and they're the people who will have the cell phones of folks like Luke Johnson up at Santa Rita Jail um, and form this human connection network. Um, again, just creating the culture here, um, paying attention to um, the, the reality of, of keeping your prescription filled, sort of sustaining people. This is another piece where it's getting started is, is not um, is a decision, but to sustain it, you need ongoing help. And this is where what we've seen is that the original idea was that bridge clinics would serve as an interim treatment setting, and then people would quote-unquote stabilize and go on to other settings. What we're seeing all across the country and in Canada is once you create this heart-centered, low-threshold, flexible clinic, people really don't want to leave. And so it's about a long-term support that, that meets the needs of many of the folks who have use disorders and often might not have any other disorders. It's their primary thing they're struggling with. Mm -hmm. And for those folks, this style of care is what keeps them engaged, which is the way you, you prevent overdoses at the, at the bottom line. Um, mm -hmm. And then moving up from there, it's the way you promote folks being better fathers, better employees, you know, all these, all these other things that, that, that we all benefit from. So if people don't want treatment in the sense of they don't want buprenorphine, they don't want Suboxone, that's, that's not a door that closes. You know, the, we consider that we have those folks, we call them part of our community. So there's folks who we engage with and they don't show up to clinic appointments to get buprenorphine, but they're still part of the people that we're committed to serve. So that's this, con this concept that we, we all must be harm reductionists. Um, there has traditionally been this totally insane, totally American, um, thing in the United States where abstinence-based treatment was separated from harm reduction, was separated from medical treatment. So sort of these three political camps that if you step back make no sense whatsoever. And we're just trying to smash them together. So we mm -hmm. do safe, clean needle um, distribution and education in the emergency department. Um, again, this is one of the first emergency departments in the country to do this. We do safe smoking kits for folks that are struggling with cocaine and methamphetamine. Um, we distribute fentanyl test strips, condoms, um, all of that stuff. We just sort of take that on as um, this is about people, not diagnoses, and whatever, whatever they need, whenever they need it, that's our goal. And one of the reasons we're so excited to collaborate um, more closely with HEPPAC, who should be hopefully on site soon at Highland in the next month or two. So why is this so important? Um, you know, there, is a, there are a lot of people who use drugs. You know, most people who use drugs do not have a use disorder. Of the folks who used, ha, do have a use disorder, many of them will actually do quite well. You know, they're not gonna overdose, they're not gonna develop an infection. Um, and then there are really folks who are incredibly high risk. 
that are driving our overdose rates to historic levels. And this is, again, where the ER is so important, um, is because we do have compelling data um, that within, within the year of an ER visit, you might have a mortality as high as 5% for folks who have survived a non-fatal overdose. And of those, many die in that 48-hour period directly after discharge, which is why we focus so much on the ER. Um, the emerging stories here, kind of big picture, fentanyl, um, you've probably seen in the Chronicle, it's the truth, it's moving west. This is, I have a lot of colleagues on the East Coast I work with, and literally a year ago, you know, we weren't in this situation, but now we are. And fentanyl, just for lots of technical reasons, is very dangerous to use um, and is, is associated with overdose whenever it comes into a community. Um, and those overdoses really sustain. It's not, I mean, there's some situations where a new substance can enter into a community, people figure it out, and then they're able to protect themselves. Fentanyl, just by nature, is just hard to protect yourself against. So you do see sustained high levels of increased mortality, and that's now crossed over into the West. Um, it's also crossing racial and ethnic lines in a way that, that we did have. You know, Oakland has had folks using black tar heroin for a long, long time, and a lot of really kind of you know common sense ways that communities protect itself um, from overdose. And fentanyl's breaking down those those protective, you know, really almost mm -hmm. cultural mechanisms um, in a way that weren't there. So we're seeing a real rise in mortality amongst African American and other um, non-white um, people of color using um, using opioids and stimulants, um, methamphetamine. So that thing that's happening is really awful and it's real and it's happening right here. You're going to see statistics that show that Alameda County has a low overdose rate, but but San Francisco has an enormous overdose rate. <clears throat> overdose rate, excuse me. The thing to remember is there's an eco there's a ecology, sort of a, and a topography to overdose where many people who are from Oakland, who live, have family and friends and history in Oakland, will physically die in San Francisco because that is the, the fentanyl market right now and it has all to do with how it's sold. Um, so many of those stats in San Francisco really represent our community. Um, okay, so all of this is the uh, summed up with, is, uh, this is Loris Maddox. She's a mentor of mine, used to be executive director of um, HEPAC. You know, because we're really just talking about common sense stuff, you know, being nice to people, being convenient, being flexible. She just calls this no shit science, right? Um, which is, I just think, really calls out how um, crazy we can make some, um, you know, so much of accessing medical care. So um, where the rubber meets the road, um, you know, these are some data from 52 hospitals in California that were all <clears throat> bridge funding to do these types of programs. And in yellow, you can see Highland Hospital. And then in the gray, you can see the average of all these other 50 hospitals in California. Um, and it, I think it really goes with that. It's this, this picture speaks for itself is that we just see more people, we treat more people than really pretty much any other emergency department in the country, pound for pound. Mm -hmm. And it's driven by culture. Um, we, we're not mm -hmm. smarter. We're not more strategically tactical. Um, we just have a 24-7 culture um, of, you know, people are excited to treat the folks who have youth disorder with buprenorphine, nurses, PAs, um, and that word has gotten out. So now everybody knows, like, okay, no matter what, you know, the last case scenario, you can just 
quote, go to Highland. Um, and that is kind of the default plan for accessing, um, enter, entering into, into treatment in Alameda County. Some real basics just on a sort of our, you know, kind of logistically how we came. Um, so 2016, I can remember battling with the P&T committee to get buprenorphine on the formulary at all. Um, then the, um, then we developed, there's a buprenorphine induction clinic, which was really focused on primary care patients. And then the ED bridge program, I got funding from the California Healthcare Foundation um, to start just tinkering with this idea, which was quite novel at the time of, hey, can we start buprenorphine in the emergency department? Um, and then the buprenorphine induction clinic led by David Tian and Shauna Atkins, mm -hmm. it gets started seeing folks in um, K7, working, um, working there. And then the bridge program keeps really develops steam in the ER and starts partnering with the substance use disorder program um, as really focusing not so much on primary care referrals, but on the folks that are stepping right out of the ER um, into treatment. Um, then most recently here in 2020, everything comes together. So the buprenorphine induction clinic, the bridge clinic, we merge and become one thing, which has enabled us to um, expand tremendously. So now we have amazing faculty with Monish Ulal, um, Eric Anderson, David Tien, um, Nicola Longmuir. We're able to offer five day a week drop in a specialty addiction care um, with with a whole with two two sons, and then we have a National Institute of Health a research project, which enabled me to hire three other research assistants that also kind of function like substance use navigators. Um, and with with that, um, we we really are um, seeing a tremendous number of people from all over the county and, and, you know, frankly, all over the state um, and the region is that people come in um, who are unable to, to access services in other places. So we see between four and 700 encounters a month um, with our team. So the, um, this is really, again, sort of in our four to 700 clinic visits per month. 24-7 um, access through the San Leandro, Alameda, and Highland ERs, five-day-a-week oh. drop-in um, clinic. You know, depending on how you um, classify them, about five full-time substance use navigators with then the integration with the, with the substance use disorder treatment program, which has cognitive behavioral therapy groups, um, individual therapy, these types of things that link the or, or complement the medication treatment with behavioral interventions for a really you know, best-in-class program that's really got everything you're looking for. So the, the model is spreading. Um, there's a lot of support for this work at the federal and state level. Um, the Behavioral Health Pilot Program um, was a $20 million allotment from the state legislature. That was approved last year. This year, the California Hospital Association has lobbied hard is a, I mean, it's just hard to explain what a flip this is because the hospitals were not really interested in doing this. They thought that it would be flooded with folks seeking care, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a lot of lobbying. And now they've seen the benefits and they've flipped. And so they're the primary lobbyists in the legislature looking for funding there. And with the Biden administration, who's really has some common sense um, motivation to increase funding for use disorder treatment, we're anticipating more federal funding there. 
and the the emergency department has moved from and the bridge and the associated bridge clinic has moved from being a fairly kind of um, novel you know experimental thing to being an accepted core way of this is how you reach the most high risk people in the community. Um, so we're really proud of that. This is the California Bridge Program. Um, you know, super proud of this. The uh, please. You, cabridge.org. You can check it out and um, see all the different tools and trainings um, that we now offer physicians really all over the country um, and including Canada. And it, it all started here. It's all from the Highland model. Um, in California, the, we during our first 14 months of, of the California Bridge, which was taking the, the Highland model and spreading it out to 52 hospitals, we identified over 12,000 people with opioid use disorder administered almost, you know, or over 7,000 um, doses of buprenorphine, 5,000 people got prescribed, and nearly 5,000 people engaged in outpatient addiction treatment. So the impact of this is it's one of the single largest public health um, programs in the entire United States in regards to bringing new people into treatment. All right, talked about that. So with that, I think I'll just you know conclude and thank you for everyone's time and look forward to taking any questions you'll have. I have a question. <clears throat> Go ahead, Loretta. You can ask a question. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hearing. Um, does the Bridge Program? work alongside uh, the methadone clinics, or yeah. is it a totally different philosophy um, in treatment? Yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. So um, not all methadone clinics are, are created equal. Um, so um, Mike Martinez is a good friend of mine at heart, um, and he's the medical director there, and we work really closely together. Um, mm -hmm. So I think you know if he were in my shoes, he would be running the bridge program exactly the same. Um, and if I were in his shoes, I'd be probably running hard exactly the same. That being said, the, the structure of how methadone clinics and, and buprenorphine are, are regulated is so different that they really can't do low threshold work. They, they, they can't do the, the drop-in same-day right. buprenorphine, the flexibility. They, you know, one of the number one reasons to drop out of, out of a methadone treatment in OTP is having a job. Right. Correct, correct. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's a yeah. little crazy. You have to be there at a certain time in line yeah. to get your methadone. If you're not, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, true. exactly. That's true. And there's a lot of yeah. financial incentives around directly observed treatment that really push you towards always kind of wanting someone to be showing up. Um, it's it's not it's a program where I think methadone is potentially a a really great medication for people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think there's you know I. I Last thing I want to do is add any stigma of methadone because I think there's a, a, mm -hmm. a problem there. But the way it plays out is it it's it's really not a um, philosophically the way methadone treatment programs were envisioned and implemented had a lot to do with control and 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 some things that I don't think we're too proud of. So hopefully, deregulation of methadone will will be on the table in the coming years so that we can use the medication more rationally. Is, um, where is the bridge clinic exactly? Is it through the ER department? 
uh, when you say someone can drop in 24 hours, I'm assuming that's through the ER department, but do you also have another um, office or center yeah. somewhere? Yeah, in the, <laughs> I, the, um, it's in the old, it's in Highland, it's in the old building of Highland, um, okay. so we, we literally found some sort of some closet space um, and just kind of went from there. So it's physically located in, in OA1, um, which is the, the historic building at Highland. And, yeah. and the way, you know, I'm an ER doc and, a, and an addiction specialist. I work in both worlds. So is Eric Anderson. The substitute navigators work in both worlds. So the idea is for the patient is for them to experience the ER and the clinic as almost one thing. Okay. But, but physically, they are different. And then sure. administratively, they're also different. So, mm -hmm. um, but from the patient standpoint, we kind of try to make it seem like, hey, look, you just, just show up and we'll take care of you. You know, if it's after hours at the ER, if it's during hours, if we can see in the clinic, that'll be better for everybody. Oh, that's awesome. That's really awesome. And I'll, maybe I'll just say there, I, I do think this is a barrier we want to think about how to address the idea that administratively they're separate. So the actual clinic space that Dr. Herring described is part of our ambulatory department. So that does roll up to Catherine. It's something that we talk about as an ambulatory leadership team, but it isn't part of our homeless health center scope um, currently okay. in the current state. Um, but of course, you know, many of the patients served are patients that we also either see or would Correct. want to see in our, in our clinics. So I think some of the things that I think we'll be talking about, you know, in later agenda items and moving forward this year, how do we, how do we do things as a co-applicant board to really support the integration of this service yeah. into, you know, into our scope um, and make sure that, um, that you know, our patients are getting the benefit of this? Yeah, I mean, I, that's something I would certainly love, right? Um, and I do imagine in the future, at some point, increased access to buprenorphine will be, really, will be realized in, in other clinics. And so there is a future state where I imagine that really the core role of the bridge is for those folks who aren't going to do well elsewhere. Um, so folks immediately coming out of incarceration or otherwise justice involved, folks experiencing homeless, um, folks coming from the needle um, or the syringe okay. services program. Like that's really where we, that's our mission. We treat everybody now. Um, but at some point, I think that's the, that's really the, the focus of, of why we're, we do what we do. Is the bridge program um, at any other hospital in the Bay Area, or is Highland the, the only one? The, there, there are bridge programs. Um, so it, it really just depends on what you call a bridge program. So um, the SF General has a bridge oh. clinic and, and substitute navigator, so that's the closest thing. Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, they're not quite as close. You know, it, it's, um, it's interesting. Every little hospital's own culture, they're not quite as close as we are. Um, there are substance use navigators at all the Kaiser hospitals coming or onboarding right. now. They're going to mainly refer into our bridge program um, okay. because of how Kaiser works. Um, the, uh, then oh. uh, Alta Bates will also ha also have the substance use navigator again. They just refer into us because basically they ah. don't have the ambulatory capacity, neither Kaiser nor okay. Alta Bates. To, to create a successful space for our patients. So they'll rely on us for that. Oh. And does that include group therapy as well, or um, is it just strictly the, the medication part? 
No, we're we're really proud proud of the integration. You know, we really see that that the medication is sort of the the you know urgent ground floor. If you're mm-hmm. withdrawing and you know you're in crisis, you're not going to listen to anybody. So, but once right. you're there, you know, it's the behavioral treatment. Um, that's really when you figure out like why of all the many people who are exposed to an opioid, what what happened with you that you ended up. Um, with a use disorder, um, mm-hmm. and what can you what can you do to sort of protect yourself in the future? And that's just a lot of complex, many directions, you mm-hmm. know, but, you know, classic therapy work, whether it's group and individual. Um, and we have um, five counselors, um, two LCSWs, um, and a, a really very very mature behavioral treatment program. Oh, that's awesome! Thank you. Uh, Dr. Heron, this is uh, Mark Smith. Hi. Hi. Um, one other question, uh, uh, and it might have been answered earlier. I, I kind of came on uh, about 10 minutes, 15 minutes late. Um, I'm just wondering whether or not um, there's any kind of liaison within the Bridge Clinic program, or I should say several liaisons uh, in the program that um, basically are kind of preaching the method. Uh, to other um, hospital or counties uh, that actually want to learn from us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, that is the California Bridge. So I'm the the principal investigator for that, and the California Bridge is huge. Um, we, We have, you know, we had 52 hospitals in our first cohort, and now we're expanding to to providing technical assistance, which is kind of what you're saying, just spreading the word. Mm Um, to over 200 um, hospitals in California, we wow. there's a there's a new foundation called Foray, um, which was interestingly enough it was formed by you know McKesson, that the distributor company that profited mm-hmm. wildly off of opioids in a just a really disgusting way. So they were yeah. forced to put up some money. They created a a, mm-hmm. a, a foundation, and so now Foray is doing national work. So we're we have a grant from Foray to provide technical assistance um, around the country. So we are, you know, absolutely trying to trying to get everybody on board with that. And um, you know, the one of my original um, oh did, did it freeze? No, you're good. Oh, good. Okay, good. The um, one of my original sort of supporters is Kelly Pfeiffer, um, who gave my first little pilot grant. Um, to look at this is now the deputy director for um, Department of Healthcare Services, and they, they, you know, we're, you know, we're frankly we're creating results. They spent forty-five million dollars on this hub and spoke project, and they got two thousand people into care. They spent a fraction of that, and we got twelve thousand people identified. You know, seven thousand into care. We just produce. We, we're we're reaching people successfully. So that the state is is really very very happy with California Bridge. So you, this model is very much baked into the future of the larger plan for how do you treat substance use disorders in the state of California moving forward. Yeah. That's great. Aaron, can you talk about how it's financed right now and your yeah. for that? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Like <laughs> I like little juice drink. <laughs> So, so, so basically, the um, we have funding from the Drug Medical Organized Delivery Service (DMC ODS) that that funds the primarily therapy-based 
program we were talking about, behavioral treatment. Mm -hmm. Then we have a the um, ambulatory clinic piece of which, which is funded through revenue from just billing primarily Medi-Cal, um, as well as the county had a MOU to support the buprenorphine induction clinic, um, mm -hmm. which looks like they're going to continue, which is great. And then the substance use navigators, which are, again, if you were going to choose one thing, like what's the secret sauce, like why do you see, you know, why is the bridge program so much more successful than other programs? Um, it's because of the substance use navigators. Those folks uh, right now are funded purely through grants. So it's just, oh, yeah. it's just kind of like, you know, just, it's just like street level health project. You, it's just grant to grant, um, foundation to foundation, um, that, that are funding them. So it, that, that's sort of my big, you know, single thing, um, that, that we're really struggling with is getting, because it's a new position, and anytime it's a new position, it brings up a lot of uh, considerations. Um, so that's the that's the basic funding overlook. Do you know Dr. Herring has um, has PCOR um, contributed any grants to the program? No. I know there's lots of money there. I'm, I'm involved with PCOR. That's why I'm asking. Oh well, you know that's we should probably talk offline because PCOR is yeah. intimidating. Um, and oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, they're not meant to be. Oh goodness. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so we, we should talk. We should definitely talk because it, it's been, yeah. you know, I've been talking with various people about Pecoria projects for at least <laughs> three or four years, but it's never really, we've never really gotten the activation injury to pull oh. the pull the trigger there. So, I'd love to learn about that. Yes, and I think uh, someone at UCSF, I believe, uh, not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, got a grant working on the same thing, if I'm not mistaken. So you're with UCSF as well, correct? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, and the uh, teaching faculty, and then just I work mm -hmm. a lot with them. Um, yeah. You know, Andy, Andy Tompkins and Philip Coffin and Paul Lum and Hannah Snyder um, are some of the main folks I work with over there. Um, oh, that's awesome. Great, great, great. <laughs> Um, hey, Dr. Herring, this is Lucia. Thank you so much. This is super interesting to kind of learn about. Um, I guess I'm just wondering how this, um, how our the Alameda Healthcare for the Homeless program kind of falls, uh, um, you know, falls into this program or how, you know, how they're connected or, you know, what do referrals look like uh, from either mobile and um, or different sites, um, kind of what the communication and referral system is like um, there. Right, right. Well, I, I think that maybe philosophically, you know, it's almost, you know, culturally, um, really that I see the mobile health team and the healthcare for the homeless um, mission as being the, the thing that's most aligned with our work within AHS. Um, so that really means a lot to me. Because um, so I see that this is there's sort of what we're doing now, and then there's the future. Um, so I really see the future of the bridge as you know being very just focused on the most vulnerable people in our community, and mm -hmm. substance use disorders are really always a part of that um, mm -hmm. you know, for the most part. In terms of you know like functionally, you know so for example with the COVID um, the project room key, 
mm-hmm. you know, where are those folks going to get access to buprenorphine? Um, Seth Gomez and others knew that we were there, you know, that, that the bridge was there. He could, you know, a couple phone calls, and we had set up a program where we did telehealth visits for all of the substance disorder needs for Project Room Key, and we made it happen in a week. So um, that's where those those relationships are where we have with with Room Key, and then Cherry Hill. I'm not sure if people are very aware of Cherry Hill. I love Cherry um, Hill. Right. So Cherry Hill is, in for all intents and purposes, is sort of an acute homeless shelter for folks. Yeah, who basically. Also, right. Yeah. We both of yeah, also have a youth exactly. disorder. Yeah. And and so we realized, like, wait a second, you know, they technically have a medical director, but they don't do medications. Yeah. So yeah. we're like, hey, this is crazy. So over the course of years, it took, you know, we got to know them by name and became friends with them. So now, you know, Denise knows that she just calls the bridge, and we do televisits mm-hmm. five days a week with Cherry Hill, um, and all of those folks get immediate uh, on the So good. Right? You know, <laughs> so um, good. And you so, work with John George then too. Yeah, John George. Is, yeah, exactly. John George is yeah. is, is is absolutely. Um, I think there's work to be done. I don't. I'm not as proud of yes. our work with John George as I'd like to be. Um, it's more complex. It's it's a different. Yeah. It, it's there, but um, we don't have a substance use navigator that's like living there. That would right, be right, right. Mm-hmm. So. I have grants in the water with that, and hopefully if we, if we land them, we'll be able to staff that, but we don't right now. Yeah. Um, so, Lucia, um, I... I respond to Lucia's question, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, no, no, go ahead, Damon. So that, that was, I was just going to ask, that that was my first attempt at that, and I don't know if it really uh, was what Lucia was looking for. No, I, I think you, you answered, you know, I think in particular, you know, with Seth's work. Um, I was just going to say, I think, you know, we need to be more involved, and I think... In particular, the connection to primary care is, I think, challenging, and we have sort of parallel challenges with mobile health, getting folks, you know, fully into our primary care clinics, which are not as inviting and, and as accessible as the Bridge Clinic is, and I think the Bridge Clinic is having some of those same challenges, you know, that you you heard um, Dr. Herring frame around people develop relationships, they want to stick with where the relationships are that have been, you know, foundational to achieving good health outcomes, and so this this how do we how do we leverage that relationship to create you know a fuller primary care relationship because I think a shared challenge we have that you know I'd like to figure out a way for us to to be more closely partnered on I think in some ways because Dr. Herring's leadership is in the emergency room um, and be, you know because of the structures of you know our budgets and our systems like we don't have a regular venue where like we're meeting with Dr. Herring and yeah. talking about these exactly. kinds of things mm-hmm, and, right. and figuring out how to like bridge that gap. We have ambulatory physicians and Dr. Tian, Dr. Yilal who are there, but I do I do think that that's something that I'd love to see, you know, you, Lucia, and other board members kind of hold us accountable to is figuring out how we can how we can make these programs work more strongly together, um, you know, for the benefit of, of people experiencing homelessness. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're on mute, Lucia, but I see you're talking. <laughs> Sorry. I was going <laughs> to say, um, it reminds me kind of a conversation that we've had in the past around the need for um, something like drop-in clinics or something that feels a little bit more accessible for our patients yeah. and kind of 
if we do kind of move in that direction in the future, I'm envisioning kind of making sure that, you know, we think about this as something like having navigators or having some kind of connection um, as part of that model. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the COVID really, you know, crushed us um, in many ways, but we, we were hitting stride. You know, we had um, every every clinic day we had meals, so we could, we, I, I'm not, the substance use navigators figured it all out, but somehow we could get meals from the cafeteria. So we really had that, that, that community health center vibe going, you know, where people wow. hung out, they brought their dogs, they brought their kids. It was, it was a little bit, of, yeah. a little much to manage sometimes. They got food, you know, they get, we had a clothing closet. They were, you know, we have a cot. If you're like tired, you can lay down like this, all this stuff um, that, Really, you know, I've seen, you know, when you walk into a community-based, you know, program clinic, you know, that's mm -hmm. working, you just, you just, you just get it. You see it right away. Like, ah, oh, okay. Right. Um, so th that, that's really what we're really yeah. hoping with the reopening that we'll be able to get back to. No. Thank you, Dr. Herring. That was a wonderful presentation. I think we all benefited greatly from that. That was very good. Yes, yes. Great. And I agree with Damon that we, you know, we definitely will um, see how we can be more involved in that. I, I would love it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah we would, would love, love it too. Yeah, great. Great. Well, thank you so much. I, thank I appreciate you so much. taking us your time. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, Dr. Heron. Bye. 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 Thank you. Okay. So now we're um, on Item E, which is uh, Damon, going to talk about strategic planning. Great. Brenda, would you mind? Um, oh, go ahead, Heather. Because this is an action item, I think, to open the discussion, we actually start with an action and do a second, and then we have our... Oh, own. yes, sorry. And, and then at the end um, comes the vote, and we'll figure out the time. But actually opening the discussion starts with, an, with the motion to act. Thank you. Okay, so I'd like to uh, open the uh, an actual item that we talk about the strategic planning with uh, Damon, Dr. Francis. I think the, Heather, do you want a motion to establish a date and time of this of the strategic and, planning retreat? Is that the one you're calling for? Oh. Mm. Just to start talking about it, Heather? Kayla's going to help us, I think. You can, you can start the discussion action item. Um, and Heather, are you saying that you want a motion to start discussion? Yeah. Typically, when I know that when Alexander has been here, he's told us very much that in order to discuss the action, you actually have to have the motion to do any discussion. Um, so uh, that's kind of where okay. we where we've been trained to do. So what we're at, so what, what we would say is, um, can I have a motion to establish the date and time of the strategic planning retreat? That would be the motion, or that would be what you ask for. Um, then one of your members can say, I move that we establish the date and time of the strategic planning retreat. You get a second. Damon would do his full presentation of what that would look like. So you can help sit, so that will help frame like the yes, you're going to do that, and you're going to pick date. Okay. We can do it consistent with what Alex has told you to do before. So um, if we could have a motion, Madam Chair. 
Can we have a motion to um, establish a date and time of a strategic planning retreat? Uh, my, uh, this is Mark. I second the motion. Thank you, Mark. Okay, and so just because we had some people talking at the same time, that was B. I heard B's voice for making the motion, and I heard Mark sending the motion. Yes. And now we can have our discussion. Go ahead, y'all. Great. Brenda, can you um, scroll down to the slides? And you can go to the next slide. Next one. I have too many intro slides here. Um, <laughs> there we go. So um, hopefully you all had a chance to look at the materials ahead of time. Um, but um, you know, I really wanted to um, have some time together as a co-applicant board to talk about strategic planning, which is one of our required tasks. Um, we've been around for, what is it, a little bit over two years. And it's something we're required to do every three years. Um, and I won't read this definition from the National Association of uh, Community Health Centers. I think um, it has a lot of sort of buzzwordy type things in it. What I like about it is the I like the puzzle pieces here. I think what strategic planning is about is making sense of some of these pieces like we were trying to do, I think, in that last conversation. There's the bridge clinic over here. There's mobile health over there. There's Cal-AIM happening at the state. There's, you know, this happening with the housing segment and how do we put all the puzzle pieces together to sort of create a picture for our organization of where we want to go um, together in the future. So that's the process that, that we're embarking on now together. Um, you can go to the next slide, Brenda. So um, the requirements are that we as a, as a co-applicant board do this every three years or more frequently that the process is directed um, by, by the co-applicant board, by the governing board that it includes, at a minimum, identification of health center priorities, that it includes a three-year plan for financial management of um, the organization, and that it includes a three-year plan for capital expenditures, um, which would typically be things like buying really big equipment or choosing to rent or, or purchase buildings or choosing to um, invest a lot in information technology or information systems. Um, and then subsequent to the creation of a plan, um, HRSA requires that there's evidence in our minutes as a board of actually monitoring how we're doing on the achievement of those objectives. Um, so those are, those are the requirements. Any questions about what we're required to do through this process? Um, Damon, no. Uh, this is Mark. Uh, no, I don't necessarily have questions about that, but I just want to make you aware that not everyone, um, uh, or I should say myself, I, I have actually not been able to see the journal material. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep that in mind as I'm presenting. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. There, there, uh, there is one question, though. Uh, um, is there any designated time, um, you said every three years, but is there any um, specified time specific that we need to do, do this by? I'll get into the proposed process that, that, I'm, that I'm proposing okay. um, uh, for, you know, for our specific plan. But as far as HRSA says, it's every three years or more frequently. You can do it every year. You can do it continuously, actually, as long as you meet these requirements. Um, but you have to do it at least every three years. Okay. Um, great. Next slide. So I, I did share, and I'm aware that some folks um, didn't get the materials ahead of time, but um, I would encourage you after this meeting, if you can, some pretty 
cool um, videos that the National Association of Community Health Center has done just as an orientation to strategic planning. Um, and in one of the examples, they talk about Casablanca Health Center. Um, and so it's a good way just to kind of wrap your head around the kinds of things that happen in, in a community health center strategic plan. You might establish goals and priorities, which in that example would be explore the opportunity to provide additional dental service. Then you might establish some measurable objectives related to that, like maintaining a payer mix in their case was something that was important, although they didn't call it necessarily that specific number. You might identify some strategies and tactics like hiring a dental director, and then um, one, of the, one of the sort of required elements in order to monitor is to establish some kind of timeline for achieving some of those objectives. So that's a great video. There's a link here and then also in the, in the email that um, Brenda sent out ahead of time to, to kind of walk through what a process might look like and the kinds of considerations that a community health center might make. Yeah, very good. Um, I think for us, you know, aside from meeting the requirements that HRSA sets for us, I think there are some other potential benefits from the process. We're still, as we've discussed, you know, here, uh, a young um, board, and I think um, trying to figure out um, how we can really benefit programs like the Bridge Clinic program we just heard about, how we can benefit the mission of Alameda Health System overall, and, you know, most importantly, how we can benefit people experiencing homelessness in our sort of complex sort of situation. And I think this process just gives us a chance to strengthen ourselves as a co-applicant board, um, you know, to, to, to learn how to have some of these conversations that, you know, really bridge the gap between the financing and the service delivery and regulations and other sorts of considerations. Um, I think um, because of the requirements of the process really being heavily, heavily focused on financial reports. Um, I think this is going to hopefully help us improve our financial reporting as a health center to, to us as a co-applicant board. Um, and then um, I also, you know, I think Catherine has been really um, encouraging around this process um, as our interim chief ambulatory officer. And I'm really looking forward to aligning the um, co-applicant board strategy planning process with the ambulatory care processes um, for setting our budgets and staffing priorities. And you probably heard my son come home behind me just now, too. So this is an overview, Mark, to get to your question of um, what it is uh, we're, we're the, the timeline that we're sort of hoping for. Um, I'm really planning on using the co-applicant board meetings as kind of our monthly milestones to march through. Obviously, in between time, some of the staff and, and um, definitely Loretta as our chair will be involved in, you know, having some other conversations to continue to drive the process forward. But at this month, my hope is we um, do this kickoff and then talk a little bit about our mission and that we establish a date and time for a retreat. And then next month in July that we review some of our background documents again. So that would include the most recent needs assessments that have been done in our community around people experiencing homelessness, which um, Wanda Johnson, our nurse practitioner, who just recently got her doctorate, is reviewing and is going to come to the board and present um, in July, which I'm really excited for you all to get to okay. meet her officially and have her present those to you. Um, and then we'll review the SWOT analysis that I did as part of my onboarding assessment um, last October, and we'll review some additional access quality and experience data that, that we have within um, ambulatory and then at that time, um, the action item will be hopefully to nominate a retreat planning task force, which, you know, will be two or three of us um, to work together to just make sure that we have a good agenda for, for the retreat time that we hope to spend together. 
And then in August, um, I want to dedicate that you know whole conversation really to reviewing financial reports because mm-hmm. I think um, that's going to be you know a, a deeper dive than what we've done in the past. Um, ideally, in order for us to accomplish the HRSA requirements. And then in September, we'll um, try to have that retreat where we do some draft goal setting and strategy development together as a group. Um, between September and October, I think Heather and I will be really busy trying to draft a document that incorporates all the ideas that we've gotten out of those discussions. And then in October, we'll be able to review that document together um, as, as a co-applicant board before you know getting some final comments on it and bringing it back in November for final approval of that document. So the the action items are actually bolded, and then in addition, the border treat, which isn't an action item but will be a public meeting, is also in bold on this um, to kind of um, give you some give you some milestones along the process. And then ongoing after November, we'll do some quarterly monitoring of the strategic plan. So this is this is of course open to your suggestions or thoughts or ideas as well. Um, so I'd love to hear any comments or thoughts about this um, at this point. Well, here's my question. Um, it, in terms of establishing a date and time of the strategic planning retreat, or or actually having a retreat, uh, when I think of a retreat, I think of us going somewhere or or um, into some different environment in which to do strategic planning. But uh, given uh, the times that we're in uh, with COVID, with COVID and all, I, I assume you're saying, or if, maybe I'm mistaking what you're saying but i believe you're saying we would going forward we be we would be using some of our time or a lot of our time um uh as we currently meet in 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 zoom uh that we basically would be zooming this retreat but what i propose is that right now we set aside a six hour block of time um and then we'll have to follow you know guidance around public board meetings um, so I don't know, you know, by September what that guidance will be, whether boards will be required to be meeting in person again, whether they'll be allowed to meet in person oh, yeah. again. But I think on the basis of, you know, whatever whatever the regulations and laws are at that time, we'll have to figure out how we're going to come together. Um, but what I'd like to do today is just set aside six hours that, you know, we can agree will be the time of the retreat, and then um, we'll return to, to those really – thorny questions, Mark, as we, as we move yeah. forward. And I think as we will in our, you know, for these meetings as well, right? These used to be required to be in person. Um, and I anticipate at some point maybe required that we meet in person again. Um, we, you know, we don't know the answer to that. So um, right now I just want to set aside the time. I think, you know, if it winds up that it has to be on Zoom, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe, we'll maybe, you know, amend the motion at a, at a future meeting, um, you know, to keep, to keep people from having to kind of stare at each other on a computer screen for hours and hours and hours all day long. But for right now, my hope is just to kind of set aside a chunk of time uh, for us, if that makes sense. And, and we'll come to that at the end of this so that we can, you know, have continue with the discussion and then have the approval kind of close this session out. Okay. Okay. And Damon, I'm also, um, with your retreat planning task force, I would imagine that that task force will be looking at those questions and how to make it uh, happen. So, Mark, if you're interested in figuring all that out, um, you may uh, ask people to nominate you next month to be on that task force. Okay. I'm certainly open to that. Any other uh, questions about the process? Oh, go ahead, Mark. 
Yeah, the, the other part of this is uh, the one thing I, 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 um, I think that's going to be really um, interesting and kind of, um, well, let's just say interesting to really uh, tack down is, 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 is the, the, the financial uh, the, the financial responsibility that we have in terms of uh, uh, financial reporting. Uh, because we haven't really, as a board, I don't think we really have done that yet. And it's, 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 it's going to be interesting um, going forward to how we, how we set that up. I think that's going to be very important in order to meet that obligation. Yeah, I agree. We, we have, you know, formally we approved budget. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. And we have we have you know met our HRSA obligations uh, up to this point in time, but I think um, strategic planning represents something we haven't yet done, and I think the requirements for um, financial reporting and approvals for the strategic planning process are you know more intense than the requirements that we that we have met so far. Um, and I think I think there's an opportunity. You know, there's one level of meeting the requirements, and there's another level of being a community health center board. And I think our goals are to be a community health center board and, and to leverage the requirements to help us be the best we can be as a community health center board. And I, I do think there are opportunities for us to, to do that as well. Great. So we can go to the next slide. Um, so um, in addition, you know, it's not just going to all be dry, you know, like, meeting HRSA requirement type stuff, I, I want to continue having presentations like the one we just had from the Bridge Clinic so that you can see kind of what these puzzle pieces are looking like right now, um, you know, from, more from the perspective of our staff and from the perspective of our patients. And um, so we're, in addition to the Bridge Clinic, we're um, hoping to have the complex care management team come, which is also, you know, part of a separate part of the organization outside of ambulatory, but we partner with really closely, um, led by, by our colleague, Lily McCray. I um, also want to have the Alameda County Office of Homeless Care and Coordination, which is a new office um, that's been established within the Healthcare Service Agency to coordinate the homeless response across Alameda County. I um, want to have them, one of their representatives, come. Um, one of our wellness centers, um, I want to have, have you kind of take a deeper dive into just, you know, the core operations of the ambulatory via one of our wellness centers. And I think Eastmont is probably um, one of the better ones to do that with. Um, I think other, yeah. otherwise you're hearing a lot from Highland folks, um, and, and Eastmont is kind of at the epicenter of, you know, where the homeless pandemic uh, yeah. has yeah. its epicenter in, in East Oakland. Um, and then also um, we're doing a lot of kind of cool piloting work that you've heard about in various reports here and there with, the, with um, our dental program. So that's another program that I want to make sure, and it's obviously an enormous need in the population. It comes up number one as a clinical need for the last decade um, among people experiencing homelessness, you know, who we survey. So we'll have our, our dental services come and present as well um, between now and November. Um, and feel free to, you know, over time, send emails to me or Heather if you think there's, you know, someone else you want to see. Um, we can we can remix that. And um, once we have the plan done, it's a it's a flexible document and a flexible process. We can we can consider who else we want to bring as part of, you know, as part of implementing our strategy or reconsidering our strategy. Um, so I listed this, you know, we haven't really structured ourselves as a team so much with, you know, sort of regular meetings or anything like that, but I think these are the folks who are 
going to be um, a level more involved than we are just as a co-applicant board this meeting in, in terms of developing the strategic plan. Um, and so, you know, we'll lean um, heavily on Loretta as our board chair um, to help give us some guidance. Uh, obviously, Heather and I will be really involved. And then um, from Alameda Health System, Catherine is on right now. And Elizabeth Nine does a lot of our um, financial modeling um, for, um, for ambulatory services. Um, we'll ask for assistance, you know, in order to produce some of the reports that, um, that, we, that we need to present to you all and some of the projections and things like that. Um, so are there any, that's kind of the, base, the basic outline of the process. Um, I'd just love to entertain any ideas people have. You know, I, if, you, if there's something you really want to see as part of the process or, um, or something you really don't want to see as part of the process, I'd love to know that so that Heather and I can try to make sure you see or don't see those things. Um, or if you have any questions, please, um, please let us know. Um, one of my questions would be, um, you mentioned Eastmont, um, as opposed to Highland folks. I was wondering, um, and I understand why you would uh, mention Eastmont, um, but um, are you sure that uh, we should not have or not invite at least somebody who represents Highland in some form or fashion? Uh, I'm not sure, and I can I can try to figure out how we can weave in someone from from Highland uh, from the Highland. So many of the folks that you know, Bridge is at Highland. I practice at right. Highland. You know, um, so a lot of the folks that you kind of naturally hear from anyway that are on the list are at Highland, but they're not necessarily in the you know firmly established in the wellness center. Um, but if if you think that's important, Mark, it is our biggest um, homeless health center clinic. Um, we can we can try to weave in some representation from Highlands campus from the wellness center on Highlands campus as well. But you'll hear you'll hear from plenty of folks who are Highland based with the plan as okay. it is right now. Right. Um, yeah. It sounds like to me the um, somebody from the wellness center would also <coughs> you might benefit from somebody specifically from wellness. Great. We'll try to work that in. I just recently have become involved on a personal level of uh, using some providers at the Eastmont Wellness Center. And um, that place is really amazing. I mean, what I can just see what we could accomplish there via the rooms, the room that they have and the organizations that they have there in that whole um, mall situation. You know, it's, it's just fantastic. I think it's perfect for the homeless. I, I really do. Yeah, I think I think a lot of our staff feel the same way. I see a lot of possibility yeah. there. I think the county, the county also is you know co-located co a lot of services there, um, and and yeah, you know across exactly. the street, um, the Acoma Market and um, the um, the Black Cultural Zone is, has really started developing that space there. So it is becoming a hub yes. of sorts in that area. Yeah. 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 It's exciting. Yeah. Um, one, one other curious question I have, too, um, this is Mark again. Uh, the, the other curious question I would have, which I wouldn't expect you necessarily be able to answer tonight, and that is, as far as the financial reporting, in terms of strategic planning um, for um, upcoming years, um, what, I, what, what, I, what, what I'm wondering is how do we do that 
Uh, when budgets are not uh, budgets are not fixed, um, they're they're not fixed uh, uh, in the same timeline. In other words, you know, um, county budgets, you know, typically are usually a fiscal um, thing, and they only happen year to year for, for, in a lot of cases. And so, how can we project um, financially into the future? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, just to just to add some points of clarity there. So the budgets we approve are calendar year budgets um, for our scope of service that um, that then feed into the overall healthcare for the homeless budget for the county that then goes up to HRSA. And, and um, the, the budgets that are really important for implementing our scope of service are actually on a fiscal year, you know, July 1 to June 30 timeline um, at Alameda Health System. And so we're kind of halfway in between. My hope for this strategic planning process is that as we um, will we'll have to pass an annual budget, you know, in the middle of this process as a, as a co-applicant board as well, probably in that August meeting as well. Mm -hmm. But as we start to set priorities, you know, by, by November, if we sort of come to a strategic plan that we finalize at the co-applicant board, I think that will be a really meaningful input into the budget process that, um, that you know, Alameda Health System will have to will have to operate in order to begin a budget that begins, you know, July 1st of 2022. And then we'll be able to sort of create this six-month meaningful back and forth where we actually have time to have a conversation about priorities we've established at the co-applicant board, how those priorities are playing out over the course of Alameda Health System's budget process, right? And then when that budget process is concluded, we'll get to see six months into implementation with our 12-month budget process. So I think it, it's going to mean, you know, being at a, in a sort of slower pace and not, not you know, not being like, we've, we've approved it, let's see the budget go into action right away. Um, no, but I, I do think it's also going to allow us to use that slow pace to then actually really establish this bi-directional dialogue that, you know, that you and Loretta have, um, have made really clear to the Board of Trustees, you know, we're interested in seeing as a co-applicant board. Okay. Okay, that makes that makes total sense. Yeah. Well, um, and um, also let me just ask another quick question. Um, um, what is, uh, what if any deadlines uh, should we be aware of regarding um, the strategic planning? The best I can tell, you know, externally imposed deadlines, the best I can tell is um, we have to do this once every three years, and I think, you know, we didn't exist three years ago. So I think once we've been three years in existence, unless we've actually completed this process, that would be a compliance hit against us. Um, so I think, the, I think the deadline for that is May 2022. So we're okay. six months ahead of that deadline, and I think um, if there is, you know, if we do end up having to slip sort of past the holidays, for example, because of mm -hmm. the realities of COVID or other things that intervene, I think we'll still be well ahead of that deadline and also still well ahead of being able to inform the budget process at Alameda Health System. So my hope was like that we set this aggressive timeline to kind of finish by the holiday season. If it ends up slipping and, you know, we have to do final mm -hmm. approval in February, we're still within the three years of when we've been established as a board, and we're still four months ahead of the approval of a 
you know, July 1 fiscal year budget for Alameda Health System. So that's kind of how I was thinking about that, Mark. Okay, yeah. that's, that sounds great. Don't, don't let up on us trying to get to November, though. I really want to do it and, and, and then have us all be enjoying our Christmases. Yeah, <laughs> or, definitely. Or other holidays. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think I think our board can do that, and I think we're we're I think we're capable of doing that. Um, I just think it's important. To, uh, uh, in order to do that, though, uh, it's important how we uh, going forward how we organize it. Yeah, I think our staff can do it too, and we're gonna we're gonna do our best. Absolutely, um, yeah. absolutely, and and we know that if we if we need to ask for flexibility, that you all will have open ears. Oh, of course, definitely. Okay, we should we should probably move so that we can make sure we get to Heather's portion and we can try to also see if we can get get to a date. Um, yeah. So the other the other thing I wanted to do today, and again, you know, none of these things that we consider or discuss are really going to be finalized content until November. So you can kind of consider these conversations as conversation openers. We can have you know some points that we capture in the in the minutes and in the notes and in the discussion and conversation, but the discussion about the mission does not need to end with our discussion today and we can revisit this at any point up until we actually finalize the strategic plan document in november but one of the one of the places um that um that most you know community health centers start when they're considering their strategy is what is their mission and revisiting is it you know is it the right mission our mission is established inside of the co-applicant agreement between us as a co-applicant board and um, the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees, and these uh, this is the this is the wording of our mission. So to provide comprehensive health care that is quality driven, affordable, and culturally competent to individuals experiencing homelessness in Alameda County. Um, and another thing I just wanted to, so so we've already gotten some comments from colleagues around this. For example, culturally competent. Um, you know, yeah. for many of our colleagues, no longer feels like um, the right kind of language for, for the concepts yeah. that, that I think um, people are trying to express. So we've definitely heard that from a couple colleagues already. Um, and then on the next slide, I just wanted to present a couple other um, uh, examples of missions um, for, you know, organizations like ours, for you all to see some other concepts that are emphasized in other folks' missions. So the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council, which coordinates all the healthcare for the homeless programs around the country, um, this is their mission, which emphasizes human rights and social justice, um, emphasizes equity, and actually names ending homelessness as, you know, part of the, the work that they're focused on doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think across the Bay in San Francisco, and this is just one example among many, again, um, they, in addition to the things sort of we, we name in our mission, they call out support services um, sort of as distinct from primary care as something that they're thinking about. And I think inside our mission, um, we don't necessarily have anything that sort of um, that, that contemplates things outside of, you know, traditional health care or primary care. So I think this might be a placeholder for something like thinking about social determinants of health or health-related social needs or those kinds of things um, that, that we might want to consider as a board. So really, I was just hoping yeah. to, you know, have a little bit of dialogue, maybe five or ten minutes at most, so we can make sure Heather um, has some time after we come to a, um, a date. 
uh, just on initial, you know, initial reactions to seeing our mission and seeing these alternative missions um, that you all have. First of all, I think culturally competent is totally inappropriate for what we're doing right now in this date and time. Um, I think that needs to be explained. What does that mean? You know, that, that, that has, that can go so many different directions. And it can mean different things for different people, you know? Um, I like, I like the part of it, of stating that we want it to be equitable and we want the social justice uh, and human rights included in that. That's, you know, very, very important from my perspective. I agree with that. Um, can you go back one slide for our mission? No one that shows what our actually is. Um, I also agree with that. Um, I, but also, um, there is the idea of, of uh, support services outside. And when I think of support services outside, I think of uh, at least some of the programs we've been running, um, uh, like uh, the street health teams, uh, mobile clinics, uh, that I think could be considered support services, uh, outside of, uh, outside of the domain of, of the clinic itself, but it's still, uh, but it's still a supportive, uh, but it's still part of support services, um, outside of, uh, the, the, the hospital, uh, environment. Right. Like it includes social services, yeah. which, yes, you know, which we, we are involved with that. That's all intertwined in our, in our, um, in the scope and, and sequence of what I believe the hospital does and the clinic does. Yeah. So I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's, uh, uh, necessarily foreign to us. Uh, again, though, I, I, I would, um, uh, I would say uh, I would say the same thing that Loretta just said. Uh, some people look at support services. Uh, the The definition of that um, outside the traditional scope uh, look at that differently uh, than maybe we do. Um, but it nevertheless doesn't mean that they aren't. Um, but it's something to consider. Um, is there a possibility in the future where kind of healthcare for the homeless um, is like a larger, like more integrated model? I'm thinking like the, you know, you mentioned the Cal AIM, um, kind of looking at, you know, just the broader, like whole person care kind of perspective. Um, I, I guess, is there like a, future state that might be more inclusive of other services um, outside of just kind of outpatient care? I mean, I think that's for us as a co-applicant board to decide. 
Um, and so I, if it's something that, that interests you, I think maybe the way to think about the mission is make sure the mission is, you know, worded in a way that would allow us to then engage a strategy that potentially looks something like, like what you're describing. Um, but I think that's exactly what, you know, we're driving this strategic planning process to do. I think we have to answer questions like, should we be more integrated with emergency department programs, medical respite programs, you know, things that are currently, right. you know, outside of our scope? And if so, should our mission then speak to speak to doing that? Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's what I envision us doing over the next, you know, six months together is answering that question um, in, in more depth. Uh, Damon, Mark again. Uh, and answering those questions, one of the things uh, that I'm curious about is, uh, especially from um, uh, establishing um, um, financial outlook, as to uh, in looking at uh, what efficiencies can we, what can we do to to establish more efficiencies in the programs we already run. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, the idea of being able to give care in a way that um, that um, possibly uh, saves money or, or maybe we give care in a different way that's more effective and by, by, by its very nature um, gives us opportunity to do other things. I don't know if I'm making sense. I think that's captured in our current statement well, actually. I right. think that's a consciousness that's pretty deep inside of Alameda Health System, and it's captured in the word affordable mm -hmm. in the current mission, which I think is often kind of neglected in healthcare. But in our in our context, I think I think from the patient's perspective and from the community's perspective, affordability is really, I think, the way that that concept is captured um, right now in our mission. And, and Mark, definitely curious if you, you know, think that it could be captured better, you know, w what other sort of concepts or words would you want us to think about, you know, inserting as we, as we play with this over the next six months and, and come back to you? Okay, I'll, I'll certainly give us some thought. Um, one of the words that isn't here um, is uh, accessible. Um, I feel like is important, especially when it comes to like um, people experiencing homelessness. Kind of, um, I think in theory we kind of think about it, but I think having it more explicitly stated in a mission statement would be helpful. The, the word flexible.
Um, Mark's going to noodle on affordability and send some more ideas over time on that. And then um, I heard from Lucia, accessible um, is an important concept. So that's super helpful. And we'll, when we report back on sort of the changes we make, we'll say, here's how we, here's how we got to this. We were sort of bringing these ideas and other ones that we heard from other folks. And here, here's a mission that we propose kind of mm -hmm. keeping going forward based on, based on this conversation and others that we have. Um, all right, let's, if everyone's okay, I'd love to try to, um, we already did that. <laughs> I'd love to try to yeah. see if we can get um, six hours. So the, the, the dates that um, we've identified as staff that would work well for us are Mondays and Fridays at the end of September and very beginning of October. So the 20th and 24th or the 27th and First, so the 20th and 27th are Mondays, and the 24th of September and the 1st of October are Fridays. And I think before before hearing a motion or making a motion, I'd love to hear: Do any of those dates absolutely not work for anybody? I'm envisioning starting, you know, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. is is kind of the the time. Would you give Would you give me those dates again, please? Sure. So Monday, September 20th, Friday, September 24th, Monday, September 27th, or Friday, October 1st. Okay. Um, I think Monday and Friday are good only because there's a lot of other meetings that are going on Tuesday through Thursday, <laughs> you know. I don't know how that is for everybody else's schedule. Um, I probably can't do September 24th. Um, so, Loretta, are you saying that Monday would not be a good good day for you? No, no. I think I think Monday would be a great one for me. I'm very flexible, so Monday oh. and Friday is great. I'm just thinking that I, you know, there's lots of other meetings going on Tuesday through Thursday in other departments and, and such. That I think um, this would be this would be good for me. I don't know about oh, everybody okay. else. Yeah, they would be good for me too. I just wanted to make sure I didn't have any doctors. So it sounds like for the for the board members who are present, there's one that definitely cannot make September 24th. And then, are there any strong preferences? That well. I'm pretty flexible, as um, as you probably know. I, I'm, um, but um, if I had to pick a, if I had to pick any dates, I, I, I'd have to say uh, Mondays would work best for me as well. Same with me. Mondays work better than Fridays, but I can Fridays work. But but but, but if uh, but, but if Fridays turns out to be the general pick, uh, hey. Um, don't worry about me. I'll go with the flow. Right. So Twenty and nine twenty-seven. Yeah, Mondays are great. Great. So I think I, mean, I think we probably have enough information for someone to make a motion. Yeah. Thank you. Please don't make a motion. <laughs> Can I move okay. as an ex officio member, Kayla? I just don't know the answer Yeah. Okay. Okay, I make a motion that that we approve the strategic planning 
Loretta, you, you don't get to make the motion. I'm sorry. I don't You're, get to make it. I'm sorry. You can. You only get to ask for the motion. Okay. How many Mondays do you want? Because we've got the 20th. I think the staff, the, the staff have identified a single Monday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. as being, or a single day from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. as being an ideal time for us. Okay. Well, then let's try. I make a motion that we have our session on Monday the 20th. September the 20th. I second the motion. Yep. So now, Loretta, you can call for the Are there any... There you go. Are there any um, names? I come in a meeting. Okay. So it looks like September 20th is is good for everyone. Okay, so you asked for the, the no's. Do you want to ask all in favor? I, Aye. All in favor? Aye. 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 Are there any nays? Okay. Excellent. Okay, so we're down for the 20th then. Yeah, so the motion Nine, is passed. No, sure, South. Nine to three, correct? Yes. Okay, great. So our next, are, are we are we done with E? Um, any anything else to add to E? Oh, uh, just one. Um, this is Mark again. Just one thing. Um, can we make sure for the, for those who uh, who voted nay, who actually might not be able to make the Monday, that we make sure that we keep a uh, very clear record of what has been discussed so that uh, those those people who may not have be able to attend would be able to uh, catch up as it were on on what 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 we discussed uh, during the strategic planning period yes of course okay yes thank you mark Okay, um, let's go on to the next item. I believe this is, Heather, you're up for this one. Correct. So I am here to provide you with our monthly program report. I do not have any updates regarding our health center compliance. We did talk about it quite a bit last month. Uh, for mobile health, we have a lot going on. Um, we will be starting a dental pilot later this month with our partners from the dental clinic. We will also be starting our Eastmont pilot in July, where Wanda Johnson, our nurse practitioner, will also be holding a primary, I'm going to call it primary care practice, and Damon will shake his head, okay, at Eastmont Wellness <laughs> Center once a week on Thursdays, so we're excited about that and opening pilot, and those are the first stages of our pilots. Um, you know, for the months of March, April and May, we were supporting COVID vaccinations uh, primarily and not doing our regular service, but starting in June, we're going back to regular service. Um, Wanda, our nurse practitioner, is also on vacation for some time this week, so we do have very few clinical services um, this month. So we have had uh, Meg Moser, who is one of our nurse practitioners, who sometimes fills in when, she, when, when Wanda is gone. Um, so for the month of May, we did not have any 
clinical um, patient encounters. We did still have some clinic days scheduled for the month of May, but there were no patients who were seen during that time. Uh, we only visited two sites in May. Um, Wanda also had some vacation time in May, so we were really limited in our ability to go out and serve um, patients for regular clinic sites. We also had 22 COVID vaccinations during that time. Similarly, we had multiple sites that we were attending, but the volume at those sites declined quite significantly. And so we had to uh, do some things a little bit differently, which included facilitating transportation to East Mount Wellness Center for some patients who are experiencing homelessness who would have otherwise had vaccines um, brought to them. But because of the low volume, we uh, organized to get them to Eastmont at times that worked best for them instead. We also were supporting the maritime vaccination efforts, which um, Damon mentioned earlier uh, during his report as well. So you'll see here are our monthly encounters that you'll see about, about uh, 12 months worth of encounters and what it's been looking like for us with May just being, um, I'm just going to say, a, a significantly lower volume month. Um, one of the other uh, projects that we work on through the year um, through quality is our, our RBA metrics. That stands for Results-Based Accountability, and it's part of our contract with our subrecipient agreement with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And so I pulled out two metrics to look at um, this month. Uh, those number of patients receiving services at, uh, on Alameda, on our mobile clinic, who are enrolled in a medical home. And so the goal is that of patients being seen, that 80% of them would be enrolled in a medical home. But you'll see that our percentage is much lower than that. Um, between um, at the high point in, in March, 43% of patients seen that month were enrolled in a medical home. And in April, it was only 24% enrolled in a medical home. Similarly, we're working on referrals um, from our mobile health clinic into Alameda Health System if the patient is assigned to Alameda Health System. And so we're really taking a look at who is assigned but typically not seen at Alameda Health System. And we're looking for a 30-day within referral. And you'll see that um, the goal has been set to have 95% of patients assigned to Alameda Health System be seen within a clinic within 30 days. And you'll see that our metrics are significantly below this. And we have also looked at a few other um, We'll say outside of the 30 days. So we've looked also at well, are they seen by the end of the following month? Um, and that only increases these percentages by, by two to four percentage points. So it's not a significant change. But some patients are seen by the end of the following month, and that does make a difference versus the 30-day goal. So it's likely that our team is going to be looking at this in their next PDSA um, for quality improvement. And then we have also, um, we're looking at patients who are enrolled in Medi-Cal Health Pack or other health insurance programs for each of these months. And so you'll see our goal is 90%, and we can range uh, any given month from 66 to 82%. Mm -hmm. Here, if a patient's not enrolled, we can refer them to our financial counselors at, uh, within our system in order to get, uh, to get enrolled. Does anybody have any questions about any of these metrics? Okay, thank you so much. Um, 
uh, our leadership and advocacy uh, section is, is pretty um, very similar to what you've seen before. I will just highlight the final sentences in that we've had a lot of change happen in our division over the past month, including uh, Rafael Baccarano, um, who is the head of our revenue and access, um, has departed um, from Alameda Health System, along with Jenny, Jenny Cohen, who's uh, one of our associate chiefs, and Cynthia Rohrer. Uh, the K-6 practice manager who has not yet departed, but um, it will be departing uh, as well soon. So we have a lot of changes happening within leadership at in wow. the ambulatory. Mm -hmm. Heather, I have one question. I looked on the website uh, for the mobile health clinic um, schedule, and it wasn't on there. Is it is it going to be on to next month as to where we're visiting? Yes, um, the reason it wasn't on is uh, typically the vaccinations were not open to the right. public, specifically geared towards the um, sites that we were seeing. Okay. But yeah, it should be back. I'm okay, going to double check that right now. Thank you. Okay, if there are no Questions, Loretta, I will send it back to you for um, public comment and board member comments. Oh, Heather. Yes. Mark. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Um, I'm, I'm sleeping here. <laughs> I meant to ask you, uh, <laughs> I meant to ask you, uh, going back, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, when did you say that um, um, you were starting the um, dental program, uh, mobile dental clinic? We're doing a pilot uh, of mobile uh, dental starting this month. Um, oh, so starting this month. At the end of this month, we will be working with our dental team on mobile health, uh, testing a pilot by which we're doing a warm handoff with our dental clinic um, and our nurse practitioner, both on board at the same time. Oh, okay. And the dental health clinic is already set up there, correct? No. Heather? Oh, it's not? I thought there was an office, or I thought there was something that said dental. Was that in the past, we, or? We have dental within our scope of services at Eastmont and Highlands. Um, we don't have yeah, dental within our mobile program. Right, right. right. So this, okay. this is the change, that we would have dental going out to the sites with mobile. Got you. Wonderful. And, and as we test out our pilot and see what system will work best for both the team and the patients, we will likely be coming back with a proposal that um, may be reflected, for example, in a budget for you to consider oh, yeah. um, whether or not we want to make that change permanent and whether we want to adjust our budget to reflect a change in program. But right now, we're, it's a pilot. We're testing it out. Okay. And has it been determined as to, uh, or or will it be decided later, uh, if it does become permanent, what kind of staffing it will require? Yes, we will make a proposal around that, and then you um, would get to provide some input and be able to approve the budget. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do we have any public comment? Anyone from the public that wishes to comment? 
Okay, and how about any other co-applicant board member who would like to comment on anything? Well, uh, this is Mark again. All I will say, as far as the strategic planning, I'm very, uh, I can't speak for anyone else, but I'm very excited about uh, the possibilities of what we can come up with uh, for uh, strategic planning um, um, going forward. I second that, Mark. Planning is always good. <laughs> okay, then, um, no one else has any comments? I would just like to apologize. I would just like to apologize again for being late and phones ringing all over the place. I forgot I was not muted, and I'm sorry for all the noise. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it's all part of the Zoom culture. <laughs> yeah, it really is. No worries, B. No worries. No worries, B. Seriously, no worries. <laughs> okay, then I move that uh, this meeting adjourns at seven thirty-three. I believe it is seven thirty-three. I second. Is that what time you have, Heather? Thank you. Okay, Loretta, as the chair, you don't get to make a motion. I'm gonna I'm gonna remind Actually, you. That's not. That's not. Oh gosh, you want to make a motion? You get to. I was gonna say you get to just adjourn the meeting. You just can just say. Hey, okay, we're <laughs> meeting seven thirty-three. You're the boss. I you are allowed to make a motion. <laughs> at seven thirty-three. <laughs> yes, great. Thank yeah, you. you don't have to ask yeah. anybody permission to adjourn. <laughs> okay. All right, you guys have a good night. Very good. All right, everybody have a good week. Thank you, B. <laughs>